This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Hello and welcome to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name's Mark Vance, and we're in the midst of a three-part series kind of following up on some questions from a sermon we did in uh, the book of Romans that touched on Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which speak about homosexual practice as sin. Last podcast, if you didn't tune in, we addressed some of the biblical questions, two main objections that people raise to uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Objection one was, does Paul really uh, address, you know, committed, loving, monogamous homosexuality, or is it he just forbidding kind of perverse homosexual practice? And the second one saying, basically, why would we scream so loud when the Bible just mentions this so little and it doesn't seem to be a big deal? Um, We try to address both of those head on. This podcast, we're going to address more personal questions. Our third part, will talk more about social and societal questions. The personal questions really have to do with this simple reality that many of us, the things we're working through regarding homosexuality aren't so much how to interpret a biblical text, but how to love my cousin, how to care about my friend, how to be kind to my neighbor. It's at the practical rubber meets the road of relationships where this becomes a matter not just of biblical interpretation, but of how can I be faithful as a Christian and love this person? That That's a really tricky thing. And so at the outset, I want to say the main thing we need here is a sort of spirit-filled biblical wisdom. The, the main thing that we need in relationship to the people around us is to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Those characteristics, that needs to govern our interactions with people. And so before we give any specific answers, we want to have the fruit of the wisdom that is from above, that is first pure and then peaceable, open to reason. You know, biblical wisdom needs to guard and ground every single conversation that we have, every single interaction that we have. And the reason that we need wisdom is because in every situation we're presented with, there may not be an immediately clear and obvious option for us to take. So in that case, we're going to need to be grounded by wisdom to try to walk that balance of grace and truth. Each of the questions I'm going to address here, I'm trying to walk that balance. I'm going to give you what I believe is faithful guidance, but I want to be careful to say Good, well-meaning Christians are going to try to navigate these things and might have a slight nuance of difference from me. That doesn't mean they're not trying to be faithful. It just means that these aren't as cut and dried and clear sometimes. So with that, I'm going to do three questions that I get regularly. Question one really comes particularly from the person who themselves is struggling with same-sex attraction, or who, if you have a dear friend who is living in a homosexual lifestyle, and it goes like this, how can it be that a loving God would allow me to be born this way? In other words, I have this attraction to a person of another gender, of another sex And I look around me and all these other happily married heterosexual people that the church celebrates and they have this wonderful, fulfilling life. And you're telling me that God loves me but won't let me have that life? That that he 
It feels like he hates me, not that he loves me. It feels like, what has God done wrong that I'm so distorted and wrong? Because, it, friends, for many, many of our friends who are living a gay lifestyle, who are our neighbors, they're not trying to do so in some sort of sense where they looked inside and said, I want to be super rebellious. I don't, that hasn't been my experience talking to them. There may be some of that. For most of them, they're acting on what feels normal and natural. It, it just easy. They, they, I had a friend of mine who said, to oppose homosexuality feels like, to them, like the church opposing a biracial marriage. What, you're against people of different races being married? They're just born that way. What do they have to do with it? That's what it sounds like culturally. And so what I want to say, though, is First off, to the biracial marriage example, as Christians, we reject that because all people of all races are made in the image of God, and the Bible never speaks to that, while the Bible does speak to homosexual practice. But in this case, maybe it's you, where you just have this struggle because internally, it's always felt natural to you to be attracted to a person of the same sex. The first thing I would say is, I have no doubt that what people are saying there is true. I have no problem believing that in a world in which the sin curse is very present, there are things that may feel very natural to us that are not right in God's good and perfect design. That's because we don't just live in a beautiful world, we live in a broken world. I tried to state this clearly on Sunday in the sermon where I simply said, simply because something feels natural to me does not make it right to God. But I want to delve just a bit deeper into that, because I think some Christians push back on that. They go, look, it's not natural in God's created order, so people are just choosing to go against their creator. Well, I want us to remember that the sin curse has profoundly distorted and broken God's good world. Let me use an analogy. If you look in our genetic structure, there are genetic abnormalities, Down syndrome, extra chromosomal structures. Is that part of God's good created design? Well, the answer there is no. That disability, while not the direct result of a choice that a person made sinfully, is a direct result of the condition of sinful nature that is part of a sin-cursed world. The natural orders themselves are broken. In the new heavens and new earth, your genetic structure will not have any abnormalities. There will be no precursor to cancer genes when Jesus banishes the curse from this earth when he returns. But right now, I find it entirely normal to think that actually some of us have a genetic predisposition toward cancer. That genetic predisposition seems to me to be no different than, there could, than the idea that there could be a genetic predisposition to alcoholism, to the abuse of a good gift of drink and food. And a genetic predisposition toward any number of sins is not a contradiction of God's good design, it's a reality of a sin-cursed world, okay? So I think, is it possible that Pete will be able to look in there and say, look, there's, there's a gene that predisposes you to being a homosexual. People call this the gay gene. Well, sure, I think you're going to find that, but that won't change anything. Because just because you have a gene that makes you inclined to be a psychopath doesn't mean you have justification to be a serial killer. 
I'm not making the equivocation on the type of sin. I'm merely saying that your genetics aren't guarantees, and also your genetics do not justify your actions. If you have a genetic predisposition to getting drunk, you still have to take the drink and act on that predisposition. We are not just mechanically wired robots who only act out of our genetic structures. We're people who are responsible before our Creator for the choices that we do make. So back to this question. How could God allow me to be born this way? I think it's honest to say not everything we see in this beautiful world is the direct result of some sort of creative act of God and his goodness and kindness. Many things are the direct result of sin and its distorted effects. So that's the first thing I'd want to say. Second thing I'd say here is this. I think that the pain of same-sex attraction temptation is heightened by the way that many times evangelical Christian churches celebrate and almost deify marriage and family. My marriage to Crystal is a good gift from God. I'm tremendously thankful for the joy that I have as a father from Owen, Avery, and Reed. But biblical teaching is remarkable because it not only lifts up marriage as a good gift, Paul calls singleness a good gift as well. Our fruitfulness in marriage is not the only sign of God's beautiful blessings to us because it is not simply having a physical family, but being part of the family of God that is most important. I want to read from Tim Keller here. He writes, The Christian gospel and hope of the future kingdom de-idolize marriage. In the ancient world, there was no more radical act in that day than to live a life that did not produce an heir, a child. Having children was the main way in an ancient world to achieve achieve significant, since children were how people would remember you. They gave you security. They would care for you in old age. Christians in the first century choosing to remain single made the most profound cultural statement that their future now was not guaranteed by family, but by God through Jesus. See, Christianity is actually the first of the major world religions to hold up single adulthood as an ideal and viable way of life. Right now, singleness still confronts the idolatry of sex and marriage that many of us pursue. Singleness says my security and my identity are found in Jesus, and in him I am a full and complete person. I'm not missing my better half. Even that phrase, better half is a distortion because you're a whole and complete person in Christ. Now, God gives a good gift of marriage, and we should appreciate that. But when the Christian church obsesses about that, what we make it seem like is for our brothers and sisters who may be fighting against same-sex attraction and not seeing marriage as a viable alternative, that they have no pathway to a free and fulfilling life. But a free and fulfilling life doesn't come as a Christian from having a ring on your finger. It comes from the knowledge that you're in Christ living faithfully to Him. It's not our status, married, single, that define us. And so one of the reasons that I actually look at my brothers and sisters who are struggling with same-sex attraction and can hold hope out for them is because it's not fitting into some sort of normal social practice where you find freedom as a Christian. Okay, third thing I'd want to say, for some of you who might just really struggle and say, you know, but how could God love me if he's holding back his best from me? I want to read a quote 
from Paige Benton Brown. She wrote this quote originally addressing her desire to be married as a single woman. She wrote this, Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on a monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. God's goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new cookware. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. Okay, I know that may feel painful, but somehow even in God's plans for the goodness that he wanted to give his son Jesus, he handed it to him through the painful process of the cross. But it was in obedience to the Father that Jesus said, for the joy set before him, I endure what may not feel good to me now because God is good to me ultimately. Look, friend, it may be hard. I don't want to shortchange that. To deny yourself the free exercise of your sexual ability to follow Jesus, I am not acting like it's not hard, but I also don't want you to deny that God can be good to you in hard things. I want you to trust him. And I want you to also, final statement here, not only reject the Christian idolatry of marriage, sex, and family, but reject the cultural idolatry of it too. Friends, the whole idea that we are defining ourselves predominantly or primarily by sexual orientation tells you that as a culture, we view sex way too much. We think too highly of it. We value it too highly. To say my identity is found in my attraction is raising attraction to far too high of an actual identifier. The primary identifier that God wants to write out over all of our lines is not married, single, gay, or straight, but in Christ Jesus made whole and complete. He wants to give you a new name and a new identity, and that is the proof of his love for you. So I say to you, If you wonder, how could God be good to me and allow me to be born this way? I just simply say, look to the cross. Look to the cross that proves it's a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange you. He didn't hold back his son. He'll give you what you need to follow him. I take a lot of time on that because it's a big issue. Okay, second question, though, comes similar to that. And kind of flows out. They say, it's not just that when you tell me to follow Christ, I need to deny my sexual identity. It's that the LGBTQ movement is a community. I'm not just being asked to leave a sexual partner. I'm being asked to leave a loving and hospitable and kind community that has welcomed me and marginal people in. And frankly, I'm being asked to leave this welcoming, beautiful thing to go to the Christian church that I don't know if I want to be part of it. Okay, how would I answer that? Okay, first thing, guys, you got to know 
that most people in culture, the way they think about Christians, is not actually governed by interaction with real Jesus-loving Christians. It's governed by reading nonsense, right-wing, malicious, hating, just nastiness that is like disguised as Christianity. They're not actually interacting with Christians. They're interacting with trolls who claim to be Christians. Man, it's so true. So many people are not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting people who are putting the name of Jesus on their sinful hate. So, many people say, you want me to leave behind this LGBTQ community that is welcoming to be part of those trolls? No way. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a person like that. So we have as Christians who love Jesus and want to represent him to the world, a responsibility to confront Christian hypocrisy. We have a responsibility to say that is not of Christ when we see it. We have to distinguish Christianity from its perversions that are out there in our popular culture and readily available online. That's one thing. Second thing, though, is we need to understand that there is a welcoming and hospitable atmosphere in the LGBT community that is profoundly attractive to people who feel marginalized and out of place. They're welcoming you in, saying, you may not feel right, you may not know how to talk to your family about what you feel, but we'll welcome you no matter who you are. That is a powerfully attractive thing. Rosaria Butterfield, we read a bit of her conversion story and on, in the message on, on Romans 1. She said the hardest thing for her to leave behind was not so much a tenured professorship as much as a community that supported her. What, what we need then, kind of third point, is as a Christian community to have a fervent commitment to welcome in the outsider a fervent commitment to welcome them as Christ has welcomed us. But I do want to say this little little caveat here. The problem here is the LGBT community is incredibly welcoming to you no matter what you do, as long as you totally support their agenda and you don't confront it as sin. In other words, it's an incredibly welcoming community until it is an incredibly, incredibly potent anti-community. The Christian church can be that way too. The point that I'm making is that both of us have ground rules by which we get to participate in the life of the community. It's not like Christians are hateful and bigoted because they exclude people on the basis of some of their things. If I walk into an LGBTQ meeting and claim, well, I think the Bible doesn't teach this and I reject it, I'm, I'm not welcome there either. Both communities have ground rules of behavior you follow to be in the group, and that if you reject, put you out of the group. Whether those ground rules are political affiliation or moral standards, it's wrong to act as if one community, the LGBTQ community, is empathetic and loving to all people, and another community, the Christian community, is not welcoming because it has standards. No, we both have standards. We both have standards for entry. We should be honest with that. But there is a challenge in the hospitality, I think, of the LGBTQ community that the Christian church should respond to by demonstrating a gospel-fueled hospitality to the outsider. All right, final set of questions, and these revolve around loving family members. I'm going to take about five minutes on this. 
one here's I'm going to use one scenario as an example. One family member that talked to me said, I have a person in my family that I've grown up close to who is marrying a same-sex partner. I'm invited to attend the wedding. What should I do? What should I do, Mark? All right. This is one where I know different people will walk different ways, but here's the best advice that I can give you. You cannot endorse what God says as sin. You cannot give acceptability to that practice. You cannot say yes where God says no. That is not an option for the Christian. So if your attendance at the wedding is seen as endorsement of the act, like I just love you and I so support everything you do, then you can't attend the wedding. However, I do think it's possible that this other scenario could be real. You could have sat down with that person and with courage, conviction, and kindness said to them, I love you and I want you to succeed in life. I want the best for you. I don't believe pursuing a same-sex relationship is God's best for you. And I think the Bible is clear about that. So I just need you to understand, I'm a confessing Christian. I didn't make up these ground rules. God did. But I see his good ways. I want to honor him, and I want you to as well. That doesn't mean I don't love you. That doesn't mean I'll ignore you at family reunions. That doesn't mean I will be unkind to you or to your partner ever, because Jesus calls me to be kind to all men. But I need you to know where I stand. I need you to know that I'm not on board with that. Okay, if you've had that sort of courageous, kind, and clear conversation, then I highly doubt you attending the wedding will be seen as your endorsement of homosexual practice. Here's what I find is most of us don't have that sort of kind, clear conversation with people we love. We're more prone to put hateful and overstated, loud arguments onto Facebook than we are to go face-to-face with somebody that we care about to be clear and kind. I know this is awkward to do. I realize that it can be difficult. But if you aren't clear with your words then your actions, you know how sometimes says actions can speak louder than words? If you've been unclear with where you stand, then your actions of attendance will be construed and seen as acceptance, as endorsement, which is something you can't, because you can't say yes where God says no. I think that principle, that kind of scenario played out, is the sort of wisdom you need to have in a lot of family situations. What do you do if a you know, grandkid comes out as a homosexual. What do you do? How do you support them? What does it look like? Well, the question is, have you been clear about where you are in relationship to God and his word? For some of you, merely your attendance at a Christian church like Cornerstone, the person on the other side already knows where you stand. So you might simply be able to say to them, I think you know where I stand on this issue of what God says about this. So I can't support that, but I love you and I care for you. In this case, then, let me give another parallel. It would be no different from supporting a child who had a child out of wedlock. Would you reject that person and the child that would be born? No, you would move in love toward them. 
Your love toward them would not be seen as an endorsement of sin, but as love for a sinner in process. That's what we want to do. We want to move toward the sinner, move toward the person, while not endorsing the action. And I think, guys, that is entirely possible to do. In fact, I I can remember a story from Christopher Yuan who wrote a wonderful book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. He himself was uh, living a full same-sex lifestyle when he was saved and came to Christ. He writes about counseling a mother who had sought his counsel because she had a son who had came out as gay and was planning to move in with his partner. And she was thinking, I'm going to cut off relationship. I'll never talk to him again. And he said to her, well, what about your other son? He's currently living with his girlfriend, and they have two children together. Are you, what are you going to do about them? She said, well, I'm not going to do anything about them. He said, well, then you've decided that you're okay endorsing heterosexual sin, but you're not okay endorsing homosexual sin. Why do you get to choose? I thought God had clear standards there. Do you see the point? The point that I'm making is you have to be clear Okay, because you cannot endorse what God rejects. But on the other side, you need to be clear about that with all sorts of sins. And unfortunately, what happens in the Christian community is that we have things that we're willing to accept versus not. We are inconsistent with sin, therefore we're inconsistent in how we represent God. We need to be both clear and kind, consistent to not endorse what God rejects, but always kind to sinners praying that God would bring them to repentance. So, try to address three major kind of personal level questions. What do I do if I feel like I'm born this way? How is it that I can uh, leave my not just my LGBTQ like pursuit of lifestyle, but my community? And then ultimately, what do I do with friends or family who I have to walk through those dynamics? I want to give you one helpful resource that in all of these situations has been so helpful to me. It's a website. It's run by Sam Alberry. And frankly, if you were to look up anybody's materials on this, um, the the person I would tell you I have learned the most from is Sam Alberry. Sam and his friends started a resource, a website called livingout.org, Living out.org. They have stories. They have a blog. They have resources. They have church leaders who speak in events, and their, their materials are powerful. They have stories of people from all sorts. They're wise, and they're biblically faithful. And so I just think it is a wealth of resource. And so if you have a friend struggling, I would absolutely send them to this website, livingout.org for more of this sort of biblical wisdom that we need to guide us in the nuance of these conversations. 